0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaefer.
1: I'd like to welcome you to our third session in the life of Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the Galilean ministry of Christ. Christ spent most of his time in the area of Galilee, which is northern Israel. This is to stay away from the Pharisees and the religious leaders down in Jerusalem because every time he went down to Judea he got into some kind of fight with them. So join us today as we begin this study in the life of Christ. Thank you Father for a beautiful day out and for bringing us out here to your house to study your word. We thank you for the the great weather and a reminder that spring is around the corner and see the trees and the bud and the flowers bloom again. Father, we just pray that you help us as we study your word tonight, that we may understand it. Thank you for granting it to us. We thank you for this hours, these hours together that we have in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to actually start looking at the life of Christ now. We talked about the baptism and the. Uh, temptation. And that's the most important thing you'll need to know for your test next week. Oh, hi Gary. I didn't talk about the test, I'm just pulling your chain. (laughs) Um, But we talked about the, uh, we spent some time here talking about the Temptation of Christ, and about the birth, infancy, and that. So now we're going to actually start looking at his life post-baptism. And um, really what we've done is we uh, I put together here a brief chronology of his activities after the baptism along with the various gospel accounts in which we'll find the information. Um, I was lazy and I didn't put this in a PowerPoint, so you're going to have to just look at the Word document here, which you have in front of you.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Probably have the same thing I have here. Um, But what do we see in regards to to, uh, his ministry after the baptism? Well, one of the things is that most commentators divide his ministry into where he was when he did the ministry. Galilee or Judea or Perea. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's really the big chunks of his life, or how how it's broken out. Okay. So we have the baptism at Jordan. We talked about that last week. That's uh, Gospel accounts: Mark, Matthew three, Mark one, and Luke three. All cover the um, the baptism. And then he went out and he was tempted in the Judean wilderness. Now, where is that in relation to his baptism? North or south? Where would that have been?
2: South.
1: south. Judean Desert is down south, all right. So he had gone down there for 40 days, right? Was tempted, and then immediately after his temptation, he travels to Galilee. Where's Galilee? Back up to the north, way north, all right. So he travels to Galilee, and that's where he he performs his first miracle in Galilee, which is what? Water 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 and wine. Okay. And then John, and, and notice what um, actually John is the one who records the Judean ministries. He travels down to Judea. Why did he go down to Judea? Cause
2: of back down. Oh, you mean?
1: Yeah. What caused him to go back to Judea? What will cause a Jew to go to Judea, to Jerusalem?
2: That's a worship. feast.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So he goes down to Judea, and then that's the early Judean ministry. Why is that? Well, that's the first ministry he had in Judea. And again, why didn't he spend a lot of time in Judea?
3: Because he was causing trouble. Right. I mean, when
1: he showed up, the Pharisees went bonkos. <laughs> yeah, caused a lot of trouble. So by really being in Galilee and Perea most of the time, he sort of headed off a lot of the animosity that he was going to be facing. Oh he still had it. Um, and then from there, he travels to Samaria. We have the account of the woman at well at the well. Now, many times when Jews went from Judea to Galilee, how'd they go?
2: Roundabout.
1: Roundabout. They didn't dare go through Samaria because they were um, half-breeds. They were polluted, and a Jew dare not go through Samaria. But Christ had an appointment, didn't he? He had an appointment with the woman at the well, and he went through. Samaria. And then, um, of course, going back up, he goes to Nazareth. Where is Nazareth? Nazareth is up in the Galilee area. So you have the travel, the, the, his time in Nazareth there, where he faced opposition, right? He says, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And then we have the early galilean ministry. We have, and again, Christ spent most of his time in Galilee and this covers Matthew 4:18 through 9:13. He really spent a lot of time up in Galilee. Uh, Mark 1:14 through 2:17, Luke 4:31 through 5:27 record the early Galilean ministry. And then, evidently, he went down to Jerusalem again for the Passover. This was another feast. That's John 5. And what happened in John 5? We have the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And then he has a second trip to Nazareth in Mark thirteen, fifty-three through fifty-eight, Mark six, one through six. And then we have what we call the middle Galilean ministry. That was a large period of time. Matthew nine through eighteen records this, Mark two through nine, Luke five through ten. So this was a long period of time when he ministered in Galilee. Then we have the Feast of Tabernacles as recorded in John, where he goes back down to Jerusalem. And then evidently in the middle of there, we have the great Perean ministry. That was a period of several months. And where is Perea? It's the Transjordan. It's across the Jordan. And then we have the latter Judean ministry. Um, the latter Judean ministry would be what? Right at the end before his crucifixion, Passover and the crucifixion. right? So basically what we see is Christ going north, staying there a long time. And, and quite honestly, um, until the crucifixion, he only went down to Jerusalem for what? For the, feast. for the feast. Other than that, he was basically up in the Galilee area. He spent very little time down in Judea. And again, this is to prevent things from coming to a head before they should. So he spent most of his time in Galilee, Or, in some cases, he went outside of Galilee into Gentile territory when he went to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Um, And that's mentioned in the Gospels as well. So as you look at this, we have some interesting notes. Um, Christ spent most of his ministry in the area of Galilee. Most all of it was there. And in fact, all but several months of his ministry was spent outside of Judea. So if you look at his entire ministry, um, and by the way, Judea there is Israel. I did, they Israel. Christ made three, I think about three recorded trips to Jerusalem for the Passover, the last one being the one at which he was crucified. And all but a few weeks of his ministry was spent on Israel's soil. The most two most notable Exceptions was the journey through Samaria and the trip in the regions of Syrophoenicia. So he's only down in Judea. I, I take that back. Number one, the area of Judea was the southern part. He was only there for a few months at the most. Never really spent much time down there. Most of his time was spent outside of the area of Judea in Galilee. So let's take a look at the First miracle. This is this is really the early Galilee, well, not the early Galilean ministry, but this is when he's inaugurating his actual ministry. And it's interesting, you see it in John chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day there was a wedding of at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Third day. What's that mean on the third day? What's he? What's John doing? <laughs>
2: third day
1: of the week. No. Whenever you say on the third day, what should you do? See.
3: Sabbath would be uh, the seventh day. So the first day would be on Sunday. Friday.
1: Well, that doesn't make it. Why would John say on Wednesday he? <laughs> that makes no sense. Oh. All right. Oh, do they, What's the three most important rules of biblical interpretation?
2: Context, context, context.
3: And what is
1: immediately prior to this? What event is immediately prior to this in the Gospel of John? The,
3: some of the disciples.
1: Yeah. So three days after. The event before that, which was calling of some of the disciples. Three days later, there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, evidently, this was probably some relative that we know of. Somebody that Jesus' family knew. And he was invited to this wedding feast. And... He was not only invited there, but his disciples were. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is now understand, when, when the gospel writers are writing this stuff down, what are they doing with the events?
3: Reliving them.
1: They're reliving them, but what are they doing with the events themselves? Are they giving you all the details? No, 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 they, no they're they're really crunching it down. Yeah. All right? They're really condensing, in many cases, a lot of the discussions. It's like when your wife tells you, know, what did you do at work today? And you say, well, I did blah, blah. Well, that's not everything you did. You're condensing it down to the, the high point. So what you have here... I
0: asked my wife how her day was.
1: Yeah, that's it's what's well, a female thing, female. all right. But what you have here is um, they ran out of wine. Now, now in those days, a a wedding was a was a big deal. I mean, that was the event of a life, really. And uh, one of the responsibilities of the host, at least, was to make sure that there was enough provision for everybody who was coming. And in this case, they had a problem. What happened? They ran out of Wine long before the end of the event was. That'd
0: be a shame.
1: You know that that would be a a tremendous blot. I mean this this was yeah this is a big faux pas. This was not this was not a mini kind of thing. This was a this was a big problem. And uh, they ran out of wine. So what does Jesus' mother do to him?
3: Holds him on his thigh.
1: Say hey they have no wine. Now, now, I've often wondered, she has no track record of him doing a miracle. Now, you know, I I don't want to read too much into it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. But evidently, her telling him they have no wine intimated what?
3: That she knew about it. Well, she knew he could do something.
1: How did she know that?
3: Because she was his mother. Very resourceful. Mom if you think did. about it and you put it in context, why would it even be Jesus's concern if they run out of wine? Yeah, but Who was he to the party of the wedding so evidently
1: po- and, and some have possibly said that this was a a close relative of Mary's, you know maybe a sister or you know her brother's family that was having this wedding, and so she was concerned for her family but but she has no track record of Jesus doing any kind of miraculous thing. But so don't
2: you think she's heard that he can do all those things?
1: How does she know he... This she is the didn't first miracle. It. He had not done anything yet.
3: She probably don't even know he was baptized, she? Well, she would
1: know that. Because there was some period of time. I mean, he had time to call the disciples earlier. She,
3: she just knew
2: Christ Jesus'
3: mom. If John the Baptist proclaimed him the Messiah, maybe she figured now was a good time for him to come out and do something.
1: You know, I, I don't want to go back and psychoanalyze Mary and all that, but it seems to me, you know, you read this, the intimation here, is she had some inkling that he was able to do something. She didn't know what it was or anything. And she didn't have this whole Messiah thing sorted out. But she knew what. She knew that there was something different about Jesus because he had never sinned. He had never, yeah. He was, he was, he was the,
2: successful in everything he did. He was the
1: perfect kid. And maybe she was just because he was. She was close to the family. She thought maybe Jesus and his disciples could go and scare up some wine. Possibly she wasn't even thinking of a miracle at all. Maybe she just thought he could go out and maybe dig up some wine before her her brother or sister were shamed by losing by not having wine. But
2: don't you think that the way his birth was that she knew something? Yeah, yeah. But she didn't understand
1: the implications of that. Yeah, but
2: she. But
3: if he was always doing what she told him he would actually be the path of least resistance. I mean, in that kind of a situation, you're not going to send someone out that's going to half-heartedly look for it and not get it. You want somebody that's going to go all out to do it. Right.
1: And I think, you know, again, we can can overanalyze this thing to death. But I'm not sure, I'm not convinced she had a miracle in mind. I think she had a son here who was the perfect son treated her with respect his entire life. And she was, you know, her family possibly was in a bind. Because why would she be invited to the wedding? They had to know the people. And possibly she thought maybe she could get Jesus and the disciples to go do something and get some wine before there was a problem. And she told the servants, "Well, and now, now this is interesting. What was Jesus's response to her?"
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you look at that. And on the surface, what do you, what impression do you have on the surface? Yeah. Well, well, you know he didn't sin, right? right. So whatever, whatever was said here. Right.
2: Like a joker, or funny
1: wasn't well, a joke or a funny what was Jesus doing?
3: maybe he was acknowledging that she was putting him on the spot
1: how was Jesus viewed at this time? say that again how was he viewed by society at this time?
3: the eldest son
1: and as a, res- as, as a result what was his responsibility?
2: Take care of the family Family.
3: business, whatever that business might be.
1: And so they would see what would have been Christ's relationship then to his mother,
2: like her caretaker.
3: Did he take care of? He had the full responsibility for taking.
1: But he would be still seen as her what?
3: Son, Son. eldest son.
1: Right. So he'd still be seen somewhat under her influence or authority. And what's he need to do if he's going to go into ministry?
3: He needs to sever that.
1: He needs to sever that. And I think this is his way with his mom of respectfully severing that. And, and by the way, saying woman, there was not a, it was not a, um, a statement of derision. It was not a statement of sarcasm or or anything like that it was not it was it wasn't him doing that but what Christ has to do is just as he did at age 12 why are you looking for me I'm about my father's business he has to redefine the relationship with his mother I'm no longer your son in the sense of that I'm under your authority I have a mission That I'm here to perform, and he has to respectfully sever that prior relationship. But what does his mother tell the servants? Do what he
3: says.
1: Whatever he tells you to do, do. Now, again, I don't. I'm not convinced in my own mind as I read this that she knew there was a miracle in the offing. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Well, he's never done a miracle. He's never done a sign, and that's one of the interesting. things because it says this was the first miracle he did. It says that. this was the first sign.:'
0: yeah, got it all wrong with that bird story?:
1: Yeah. Well you know, they say when he was young, he would make clay birds and then breathe on them and they'd fly off and things like that. That's apocryphal. There's no evidence for that. Um, yeah, there's nothing really here that would indicate that Christ was anything more than just a, the perfect son.: Everybody
0: yeah, says my time is not yet come. Did she talk him into making it his
1: time? Well, that's a good question. What do you think he meant there? My time is not yet. It's not yet time. To
2: to expose him what he was? Maybe he didn't want everybody to
1: know exactly who he really was at that time? Yeah. It could be that he didn't want to expose his ministry too soon. Mary had to have some inkling of what his ministry would be. Mm-hmm. Some knowledge that it was he was miraculous, but but again, I, I'm not sure she knew that there was a miracle in the offing. He I think she was
2: why wouldn't she? Him himself was a miracle. He bought on by the miracle. Everything about him
1: but 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 she didn't have any category for what does that mean?
3: She would have known though anything that she told him to do, he always did. Right. And he did it well, and he did it perfectly. So if you was in a pinch, who would you look for to do that? What you needed done that had to get done?
1: Yeah.
2: He's there at the party. Right. Right so why there. Why would you call on him?
1: You call on him. Yeah. Who are you going to call? call? Christ, Jesus. or Jesus? You know this. Is, That's her son and he and I I think she thought that he would take care of the wine problem by purchasing wine, getting wine, going to get it, something. But he's gotta make a break with her. He's gotta tell her this is not you know, I'm no longer your son in the sense that I'm there to do what you need, your bidding. I have a ministry, I have to go on my own.
3: If you think about all of his miracles, everything that the curse brought on us—you know, sin, Mm -hmm. death, sickness, pain, suffering—those were what his miracles were attacking. They were attacking the disease, you know, the lame, the halt, you know, the blind, uh, you know, those bound by Satan. This was really the only miracle. That was done, I'm trying to find the right words to phrase it, purely for a social
1: yeah. event. Yeah. Yep. But I'm thinking what Mary thought is that he would just go get some wine. And that's why she told, well, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And um, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish right of purification. He's holding... 20 or 30 gallons and Jesus said to the servants fill up the jars with water. Go fill up the jars with water. That sounds kind of odd but you know they do what he says so he filled up the jars and then he said I want you to take that out and pour it out to the to the master of the feast. Who's the master of the feast? The father the Yeah the one who's running the, the thing whatever that would be.
3: Actually, be the bridegroom
1: it. It could be the bridegroom or the, you know, the the one who is in charge. It may have been the best man. The best man was charged with, you know, making sure the feast went right. So take the take it out to the master of the feast. Give it to him. And of course, we know the rest of the story. He tasted the water, which had now become wine. Now, what kind of wine was it? The
3: best, the
1: best you could make. The
3: best kind.
1: All right. Why is that?
3: Because Jesus made.
1: Because Jesus made it. Now, immediately people freak out and say, well, it can't be wine because wine has alcohol and Jesus would not create alcoholic beverage.
2: you.
1: All right. Well, let's understand back in those days that the wine that we, we think of wine... When you think of wine, what do you think of?
3: 12, 14%.
1: Yeah. Bible wine, if it was 1%, that's about what it was. it was. It was less alcoholic than beer. And really to get drunk in those days, you have to drink a lot of wine to get drunk.
3: What? Did they even have the ability to stop the fermenting process? Not really, because you have a hot... That didn't come until much later in history.
1: Yet. Right. You have a hot climate. Yeah, you have, you have a hot, arid climate. And, and really the only way to preserve drink or, or like what would be with a little bit of alcohol in it to kill the bacteria because if not you could not ever store it or, or use it so this was slightly alcoholic there's no doubt about it i i don't I don't have a problem with it being alcoholic right because why does God prohibit you drinking alcohol no what does he prohibit
3: Getting drunk. Getting drunk. If you look at the Bible, there's only a couple of reasons you're allowed to drink it. One, for your stomach's sake. Paul said that to Timothy. Mm-hmm. Secondly, for a woman that's distraught. Yeah, so they, they used it for medicinal purposes. I don't believe it was alcoholic for the simple reason that when you take the sum total of all the scriptures that the Bible talks on alcohol, the overwhelming scriptures warn against drinking and drinking too much. And there's only a couple places where it permits it. And, and I think with Christ being the Word Incarnate, I don't think he's going to do anything against what the, the general consensus of the sum total of the Bible right. has to say. So,
1: so every time Christ drank wine, he de-alcoholed it before he drank it.
3: No, I didn't say that. I'm just saying I didn't think he would make it alcoholic for that party because that would have really kicked it in the high gear.
1: No, you understand what we mean by alcohol. We're we're talking about an alcoholic content that is so low that it's almost non-alcoholic. When you're talking about 1% alcohol, that's hardly...
3: If he just made it, it was as fresh as you could get. You know,
1: it's, it's, it's very little alcohol.
3: I figured it was fresh because he just made it.
1: Well, it was. It was fresh, but 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 I don't have. And again, again, the, the the word here used oinos is wine, which has a small alcoholic content. I have no problem with Jesus making wine wine. I don't have any problem with that. Could he have made grape juice? Well, sure he could have. All right, but the the problem I have there is that is that when you say it was completely non-alcoholic, you're imposing something on the text that may or may not be there. You know what I'm trying to say? You're imposing the concept of strong drink. Now, did Christ make hard liquor? No, he didn't make hard liquor. No, he didn't make that. and He didn't make what we have today, which is the 12 or 14% alcoholic wine. But I do think I have no problem with it being slightly alcoholic. Because Christ drank slightly alcoholic wine. How do you know that? He drank the wine that people drank in those days, and what wine did they drink in those days? Slightly alcoholic, it, it was. And I don't think Christ every time he took a drink, he performed a miracle to get the alcohol out there, lest he get drunk. I don't. I don't think that makes any sense. Yeah. But what? But the thing, that, the the real thing to stress, and and we get off on this forever. The Bible does prohibit you being drunk. I mean, that, that's a clear violation of Scripture. There's no doubt about it. And in our society, generally, alcohol is seen as negative. So what's the best tact for you as a Christian in our society? Just don't drink it. It's no problem. There's a lot of things out there to drink. You don't need to drink beer or wine. People
3: ask me what do I think. I, this is what I tell them. If you're drinking it for the effect, you're heading for trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking it for the taste, Get a Pepsi or a Mountain Dew or a Dr Pepper, you'd be just yeah. as well
1: off. Yeah. Now, now if I if I lived in Europe, for example, you know I might drink a beer because over there there's a whole different attitude towards it. It's a staple of the diet for the most part. Um, but again, they frown on drunkenness over there.
2: They're, they're, they frown
1: on. They frown on drunkenness. But anyway, so. What we have here is that Christ did do this first sign, this first miracle. And I don't think his mother really knew that he was going to do a miraculous thing. I thought she, you know, I think she probably thought he was going to go out and probably find some wine somewhere and bring it back. But he did this.
3: Amazing thing to me that he made so much
1: of it. Yeah, think about it. That's 180 gallons of wine. All right. That, that's a good. That's a good amount. Well, now like you could have a hundred people at the feast.
3: I you know? asked this question. We're doing. We're studying the book of John at the church, and I asked this question. I said, "You got a big wedding going on," and I says, "The people have been well drunk, or in other words, they've been drinking pretty good, even though it's a low amount of alcohol." I said, "What would happen if you introduced into that gathering?" 180 gallons of the top shelf, highest quality wine you've ever tasted. What would happen? Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I've got to say. Yeah. The average person says, as soon as you put out the top shelf, no, you no, well, get
2: oh, back in line. Yeah. yeah. Get the, back in line.
1: The problem is, the problem is, you got to ask yourself, what do you mean by wine? And and the understand, you got to you got to read, readjust your definition of wine. Wine in those days, there's a difference between wine and strong drink. Strong drink was what we would call wine today. That was their strong drink. Did Christ create strong drink? No. In fact, it says very clearly in the Bible that, you know, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a raging. All right, so don't... And by the way, even in that culture, it was frowned on to drink strong drink. There's a social frowning on that. But if you drink... 1% alcoholic beverage. It's hard to get drunk on that because you have to drink so much of it. Because by the time you get a buzz, your body's metabolizing the alcohol. Think about it,
0: because you have to drink, if you took one glass of their wine, you'd have to have 12 of those to get the same... In
1: fact, it's one glass of our wine. Now, it's hard to drink that much wine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, 12...
1: Yeah, that, that takes a while to drink that. Yeah, I have trouble drinking yeah. of water. I but again, you know, I, I, you, I don't want to belabor this whole point. And, it, and by the way, there are orthodox positions on both sides. I think it was what they would have thought that day, slightly alcoholic, and I do mean like 1% or less, but it was the best tasting wine, the best tasting juice that they ever had because it was created by the creator who made it and knows how to make it right. You know, But anyways, that's the first miracle. And Then we have the early Judean ministry there in 12, 12 through 36. We have the first cleansing of the temple. Um, sounds like, It's about every time that Christ comes up to the temple there, he's got to clean it out. And why is that? Angry they're angry. They're selling. They
2: use it for the wrong reason.
1: They're selling these sacrifices at exorbitant prices to the people less able to pay for them, least able to pay for them. And they're, make, they're getting filthy rich. By the way, Christ was not against them so. selling the sacrifice, I don't think. He was, exa- he was against the prices and the price fixing, the price gouging that was going on. It showed that the religious leaders had no sympathy for the people. They were making money on it. Now I personally, just as an aside, and I want to get on this and we'll be here all night. I have a problem when certain Christian ministry type people charge for their services. Now understand, it's different than paying your pat I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about where a church pays their pastor. I'm not. That's not where we're going at, unless you're paying them an exorbitant sum of money. I'm not going there. But I know that, you know, I've heard of Christian supposed leaders who will come and they'll give their testimony at your church for a $5,000 honorarium. Well, I don't want you. I can't imagine Christ, you know, taking a collection after the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Or, you know, if somebody comes in and they're missing two legs, depending on the size of gift, they get one or two legs back. Like you see in the whack jobs in the charismatic movement with their healing stuff. That's not what ministry is about. Christ was not in it for the money. We couldn't
2: afford yeah. No. <laughs> Doc. Right
3: no. We
2: couldn't afford Joe Allstate. No. We couldn't afford yeah,
1: now if he was in the ministry for oh, ministry, okay.
2: right.
1: if he was in the area, he would come. And he, right. and, and you know, so well, what do we pay? Well, you know, whatever, whatever you do, that's. Right. I don't care. I'm not there for the money. It's, you know, if you want to play for my now, you know, it's one thing to play for somebody's plane ticket, something like that. But, but to just say, you know, I'm charging this for my services, it's like, wait a minute, that's not ministry. And I think the same thing. I'll, I'll go to same, I'll go on a limb. I'll say it's the same thing with, with singing, with, mm-hmm. w- with, with groups, or, or, you know, concert people that come in and say, yeah, you know, we have a Christian gospel group, you know, and we'll charge 12 bucks a ticket. Wait, wait, stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: like, then
1: actually, it's not a ministry.
0: Actually, like, last Sunday at our church, there was actually this uh, semi-famous, like, like, praise group, Praise Appella, and for some reason they decided they, would, they actually came to our church. Like, normally they don't go to churches. But apparently someone in our church must know them or something, so they came. And there was like a little bit of like the pay for like just the expenses, but it was like a dollar to a ticket. Yeah. Um but like I've seen I've heard like where you have like the big things where it's like uh like oh come like to um come to our service Sunday night, fifty dollars a ticket, you can come see blah blah blah.
1: Yeah, you're not in it for the ministry now. Now you're
3: just a collection here when they have
1: the... Yeah. No, I don't mind a collection. I mean when Rob and Mark comes in here We'll take a collection.
2: Yeah, but, you know, that, okay, you take a collection. But the undercut of that is, did you promise, did someone promise them $7,000? No. Before then.
1: No. No.
2: Because I know some no, singers, we had to pay $7,000 to come to our church.
1: No. They're not and, worth it.
2: And before they got on their feet and became famous, they were singing out of our church. uh uh-huh. They were using our church to get started, and we would have them come to... Help them it's not started. a ministry. Now they got started, now they want to charge us 7000 not.
1: It's not a ministry. Yeah, no, it's not a ministry then. I don't want to hear them.
0: Yeah, no, there's a church out in... Uh,
1: I don't. I don't want to hear them. As a Christian, we didn't hear yeah, either.
0: There's a church out in Australia that... um, I don't know much about the church itself, but like they have a really good like music kind of program. And they've made a lot of... Like, uh, Kill
1: songs? Yeah,
0: yeah. And I remember my youth pastor telling me about a story. There's a guy he made a ton of, like, people raised, like, this guy, like, something, like, almost in the mid like, $600,000 or something. Because the guy who, like, wrote a couple of books and stuff about it. But he went to the church to like, oh, I have, like, brain cancer and stuff. He said he had, like, cancer, like, brain cancer or something. something. And so people were, like, giving him all these handouts and he wrote a book and stuff. And they let him do music and stuff. And then, like, a year later, like, people found out that he was faking it for money. He was and having Kansas People would
3: well, you know, Carmen, huh? The singer Carmen. Yeah. Now he used to come up to Cleveland at the Convocation Center. I used to go up and carry in. He never charged to get into his concert, but in the middle of the service, they took up an offering, and he came. He came right out and said, "This is what it cost me to put this on tonight." And then, I mean that. That's been well. It's probably been five or ten years since I've seen him. And mm-hmm. at well, that like, time, it was like almost $60,000 to put on one concert at the Convocation Center the time you rent the building okay. and pay the insurance and you know oh, all yeah. this other stuff. It cost him six, $60,000. And he hasn't been back in years. And I just wonder if people just didn't give yeah. like they should have. i seen
0: him Oh, well, yeah. I pay. know like uh, <laughs> Catherine Crowns has done <laughs> concerts at the, at the uh, Quicken Loans Arena before. And like, that's probably not cheap to rent out the Quicken mm-hmm. no, Loans. Not, right? well, no,
3: it's I bet that's expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I went to the winter fest yeah. up there, and they charged ten bucks a ticket, which I thought was reasonable.
0: Yeah, but so even at the Moody's Men Conference that I saw you at Bart, there it was like fifty-four it fifty bucks a ticket for the Moody's Men Conference.
2: $46, yeah, forty the yeah, yeah, fifty.
0: Plus the fifty, but it was only like it wasn't for. A
1: it's conference. it's one thing it's one thing to cover your expenses. You have to do that. Yes, and if you have a conference or something like that, yeah, that's you cover your expenses. But when you have people that say, "I won't come unless I get," Acts.
3: Can I say something, though, from experience? Because I grew up in a parsnip. I know what I'm talking about. The church is notorious for keeping their men poor.
1: That's the flip side of it. The flip side of it is, as a church congregation, we need to, to treat our pastors well. To, don't treat yeah, and, and that's that's the flip side of it. They use okay. they the, not anointed. That's bad. Yeah, but the point, point is this. If you're in ministry... You're in ministry for being in ministry. You're not in it to make money. And Christ was not in it to make money. He was not in it to to turn a profit. Um, he depended on God to take care of his his needs. And God did. Um but he was really upset with these Pharisees and not the Pharisees but really the scri- uh, the Sadducees, Sadducees who ran the temple because they were just gouging the people. So he he cleaned it out. And we have first here um, him talking about his, resur- his crucifixion. This was used later on in his trial. And people said, yeah, we remember him saying he's going to destroy this temple. And he was talking about his body, not the temple temple. Um, and we also have the account here of Nicodemus. Now this isn't... It's interesting here. Um, verse 23 is an interesting... Verse. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They were believing on him, but what was Jesus not doing?
3: He knew it was superficial.
1: They were believing, but they were not believing. This is the point to understand. There's a difference between believing and believing. That's that should be profound. Cuz there's a lot of people that they say, well if you just believe on Jesus you're in. Well now wait a minute. There's a lot of people that believed on Jesus but what did he not do? He didn't commit himself to them because he knew what?
2: They didn't
1: believe that they really Yeah. Didn't they they were being they, he was the new kid on the block. He was the new show in town. There was a certain charisma there but they weren't really depending on him and later on in John 8 when he said where he said um, if you continue my word you're then my true disciple what happened? many of the disciples walked no more with him why?
3: because they couldn't live the
1: life they didn't want that they want to pay that price they wanted the glitz and the glamour but when it came down to the cost I'm out of here a
3: lot of these people were, were serving him and believing him because they wanted to get what they perceived they needed from him. Mm-hmm. As long as he was giving that to them, they believed on him. Right. That's very shallow. At yeah, feeding of the 5,000
0: after that, Jesus had his super church, but then yeah. he immediately got rid of them all. Yeah. They were just, they just wanted to bring him in You yeah.
1: know, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to pick on Joel Osteen too much, but if I had a magic pair of glasses where I could walk into a church and, and I could see People glow, you know, blue if they're going to heaven and red if they're going to hell. I wonder what I would see in his church.
3: That's entertainment, in my opinion. How many, how
1: many blue would you see?
3: I think you see a few of them.
1: You got 40,000 people. How many of them are blue?
0: people. Oh, the same thing like the Catholic. Church he got 40,000 people. Yeah, yeah. 50,000. Yeah. That place policy 56,000
2: people. have you ever seen some of the videos,
3: videos of him online it yeah. just just it's like They show the thing they got up the youth. The youth. The youth hall looks like a crazy discotheque. attack.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: all the fancy lights and everything, man. But, but the, 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 the point The, the point here like the
1: Yeah, the point here is that Joel doesn't talk about the hard stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: It's what, what is it going to do for you? The What's it going to do for you?
1: Yeah. Your best life now, right? Like yeah. the and and, and, the, and the problem is, and, and we're we, we. He's only alluded
0: yeah. to it on a couple interviews
2: like salvation, but very.
1: See, we see, much. we see in the scripture again and again and again. You've got the the crowds. The crowds are fickle. They go here. They go there. They go, and Christ has all these crowds following him. But when he was done, how many people really, truly, deep down inside, believed?
3: One
1: hundred and
2: twenty. Yeah, one hundred and twenty. Right. That's the one that out of went up thousands.
1: There and out of thousands, you had a very. Fl- so you're
2: trying to say Joel Osteen has zero?
1: No, I'm not saying he has zero. I'm saying I don't. I would. I would go in there, and I bet you, I wouldn't see a lot of blues. I wouldn't see a lot of people on their way to heaven.
3: You know what the sad thing about... There, there are some there. But
2: then, but then he's the one who's misleading. You rock people to sleep in their sleep. Right. Well, it's the same thing about the Catholic. That's, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. He's the one who's misleading. Maybe they came with the right mind at first. Jesus
1: Christ could have had the biggest movement in history right. if he told them what they wanted to hear, yes. but he didn't do that.
3: He wasn't a politician. No.
1: He told them what they didn't want to hear, and they scattered because they did not want what he was offering.
3: But the masses were on his side right up to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Because he was, he
1: was, you know, he's like David Copperfield, you know, magic tricks. I mean, it's pretty wild with some of the stuff he was doing. But the crowd will turn. You can't go by what the crowd says. And, and one of the pro- and, and this is a segue into what I wanted to say here. When you're designing your church ministry to minister to the crowds and tickle their ears, what are you not doing?
2: You're not telling the truth.
1: You're not telling the truth.
2: Boy, that's a shame.
1: So there's the question: well, Who do you want to make happy—the crowd or God? God. You, 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 take, you take one or the other. You can't have both.
3: I say we've already had to make those decisions. This will start up on Cooper
2: Foster.
3: Mm. because I tell you, when you start preaching the truth. It does chase people away.
1: You are making decisions now that is going to set the tone for your entire ministry. And if you blow it now, it your ministry is trashed. I know.
3: If you, don't, if you don't get... I've done made up my mind. I'm preaching the truth. Yeah. If, I, if we ain't more than 20 people, that's right. I'm just going to preach the truth.
1: Yeah. Don't be obnoxious about it, but preach the truth.
3: I don't know, my old pastor, no. I really liked him, but there was sometimes he was a
0: little shaky and what, like for example, like he would he would talk about like the seven days of creation, but then he would be like, oh, but then I, I don't remember because I was so young, My mom has told me this, as my um he said like, oh well, it was seven day creation. He put all the information on but there's certain things we can't be too dogmatic. We don't want to chase people away. And my mom, I remember, my I don't remember happening My mom told me that a couple women, including her, went to him and like, well, what about like. If it wasn't seven days of creation, that, 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 and they actually all like kind of went after him, because he kind of backtracked on the... Yeah,
1: you don't need to run for the exits. Seven days. But but Christ didn't commit himself to these people. All right? And then we have also here in the early Judean ministry, while Jesus was in Jerusalem, who showed up? John the
3: Baptist? Well, Nicodemus.
1: Oh, Nicodemus, yeah, that's right. Right. And what's Nicodemus say? We know your teacher come from God. Why?
3: He didn't recognize his full deity.
1: But but Nicodemus saw some of the signs that Jesus was doing. Now we're not told what these signs are. But Nicodemus saw something that Jesus was doing. And what signs, whatever those signs were, Nicodemus at least had more brains than the rest of the Pharisees because yeah. he said, "Wait a minute." If this man is not from God, he couldn't be doing this. So Nicodemus shows up to Jesus by night and asks him, what, what's, what's up? And what did Jesus tell him? He said, well, you've got to be born again. And he said, well, how do I do that? Yeah. And, and by the way, Nicodemus was not saying that seriously. He was saying that almost sarcastic. What do you mean? Go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. And Christ says, well, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit. And of course, how would Nicodemus understand that? Well, born of the water has to go back to Ezekiel where it talking about the Word of God, the, the water of the Word. He's not talking about physical birth. It's about the Word of God. And then being born of the Spirit. And how do you know you're born of the Spirit? Well, the wind blows wherever it blows and basically saying you know, you got to be born again you've got to be born again by the Spirit and who decides that the Spirit does the Spirit does when the Spirit does and he says you're a teacher of Israel you don't know this now we know later on that Nicodemus did in fact become a Christian he believed but John 3 is one of those great passages because in it not only do we have that but we have um John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave.
3: You know, you put that in context. He went straight to the heart of the problem. Nicodemus was on the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader. From his perspective, he was the perfect Jew. And yet he... He everything right. He -hmm. was living right. He walked right. He dressed right. He talked right. But he wasn't right. Right. And Christ crossed him right where he lived. Mm-hmm. And then he went on beyond that because they were self-centered in the fact that they thought they were the only ones that God loved. They were God's chosen people. And he informed them in no uncertain terms, God so loved the world. Everyone. I find great joy in that scripture. Yeah.
1: That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life.
3: You
1: know, and that's the interesting thing about Jesus, you know, I call Jesus. You know, it, it, I won't use a use a Star Wars example. He's the um, Qui Gon. I mean, he just went right for the kill. He didn't mess around. Remember, yeah. remember, remember old Qui Gon. You know, and he's there. Uh, you know, when when he's, he just takes the sword out, boom, done. You know, he doesn't mess around. He doesn't. He just goes bang right in for the kill. And Christ did that. He didn't mess around. He went right to the heart of the matter. And how how could he do that? Well, he knew knew. what was in the heart of Nicodemus. But here's the thing. Nicodemus was a serious questioner. Yeah. He was asking the questions.
3: And the interesting thing, too, he didn't reveal to him he was the Messiah. No, he didn't. In in chapter 3. No, he didn't. But you know, if you go to chapter 4, the woman at the well... Those, the very people that they looked down upon and spat upon and looked down their nose at, Christ revealed himself to her.
1: This is the interesting... Gary, you know, we, I was talking with my other friend Gary that we have breakfast every Saturday. We're going through the Gospel of John. We're up to chapter 6 now, I think. But um, that's one of the interesting things I noticed. I never no, noticed before until Gary and I were going through this. The first person that Christ revealed his true identity to Was the woman at the well of Samaria. Yeah. The
3: lowest of the lowest.
1: He didn't reveal it to Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus had sort of an inkling about this. But Jesus did not come right out and say, I am the Messiah. He
2: said he's the son of man.
1: He used that to refer to himself, but they didn't understand what that meant yet. He referred to himself as the son of God to Nicodemus. But he didn't yet say he was the Messiah to Nicodemus. He didn't come out and tell him that. Um, And then we have also the account of the woman at the well of Samaria. Chapter 4, after the feast day, or after the feast, Christ um is heading back to Galilee and he instead of going around it, it's Mary, he went through it. Um before that though, it's interesting in um John three twenty two through thirty six, we have the John the Baptist exalted The idea there is that there are some people trying to maybe make John the Baptist jealous about Christ. And what I found interesting is, as I went through this is that one of the things that will kill a ministry is an ego. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now if you're jealous because the other guy's church is bigger than yours, you're in for a long, hard time. And When you look at John the Baptist, John the Baptist was thrilled to death that people were following Christ. Because he was not in it for the numbers. It was not like John is saying, I've got to protect my ministry at all costs. And you see that a lot today, where you see people wanting to build up their ministry by tearing down the ministry of others. When when you're doing that, when there's a truth issue at stake, that's one thing. But to just be petty about it, John the Baptist says, "I'm I'm glad... I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I rejoice when the bridegroom comes. He wasn't in it for himself.
0: Think about it. Someone who truly wants like the will of God. If it's like you really think you think that you want to be happy. Like, if your ministry is going to die, but it's going to pave the way for one that's just as solid, but could be like infinitely like like help infinitely more people. You're going to want like more like you're gonna to wanna to have more people like serving Christ if it means the end of like one small like you know what I'm saying. Like like mm-hmm. you have a church of twenty people, but it's being eclipsed by a church of two thousand, but they're both solid, you'd you would wanna save as many people as possible. Yeah. Be able to have as much influence as possible. You would rejoice with the success of fellow Christians. Right. Not be angry that I only have a church of forty,
3: they have a church of forty thousand. Yeah. Insecurities, egos. I tell you, man, you see it all when you when you see the leadership of the church. If you're anywhere where you're in the leadership, I tell you, it's it's amazing.
1: And and the thing is, we got to resist that. We got to say, why am I doing this? Am I doing it for the money, the prestige? Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that would like to teach a class of 400 people, but, you know, I've got a class of five. That's all right.
0: I'm lying
1: a bit for I'm fine. It's it's not about me. And it's more about, are we winning? It, it's sort of like, if you're in a war and, and the platoon next to you kills 400 enemy and you only kill four, you're not saying... I'm really, I, I wish they would have only killed four too. No, you're glad the enemy's dead. Yeah. You know, bag this thing about, well, they got yeah, they 400, we got four. I'm glad there's 400 less of them I have to deal with. Mm-hmm. You're not in it for that. And we get so focused off on this. But you see John here says, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not worried about that at all. And you see the baton being passed from John, the ba- sort of the ministry going from John the Baptist over to Christ. Then you have Christ going back up to Samaria and he goes through Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. There's a woman coming down to draw water and in those days that was what a woman did. That was her job. And quite honestly, a woman might have spent three or four hours a day drawing water. They didn't have mowing faucets in those days. They did not have indoor plumbing. They did not have plumbing at all. And usually the well was in the middle of town and you lived some ways away, you might have to walk a quarter of a mile or more with your jar, your water jar, to get water, take it back to your house. And here's this woman coming down, and where are the disciples at? They're going
3: off to get food.
1: They're going off to buy some food. And Christ is sitting there at the well, he's resting. And this woman comes up and what does he ask her?
2: Give me, Give me
1: some drink. water. Oh. now immediately you got to understand. This was, this was shocking, to say the least. All right, we don't understand the, the social issues here, but the fact that he would ask her, a woman, for water was unheard of. Number one, she was a woman. The men did not talk to the women unless they were soliciting. Unless they were soliciting, they would not talk to a woman, much less a stranger talking to her would just be unheard of. Not only that, he was a Jew, she was a Samaritan, and Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, period, much less female Samaritans. She was shocked that he would talk to her at all, or even acknowledge her existence, even acknowledge her presence.
3: Let alone drink from something that she drank.
1: Right. That she would touch. So immediately she's intrigued. What's going on here? And of course, we have the conversation about the living water. And what kind of water is she thinking of? Thing, water. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what she's down there to do, to draw from the well. And Christ talks about living water. He said, Give me some living water to drink so I don't have to come down here and draw this every day. Christ says, No, you've missed the point. And she's fixated on this, this earthly water thing until Christ does what? Go call your husband. And she said, I don't have any. He said, yep, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Now immediately, what's, what, what happens to the poor woman? Yeah, she's convicted. Why? Because here's a stranger who doesn't know her, from never seen her. And by the way, those, city, those little towns, they knew if he had come into the town. I mean, everybody knew everybody else.
3: They all knew each other. didn't.
1: Yeah, and he was, he was a Jew. Not only that, he was definitely outside the village, outside of the region. He's a Jew. How does he know that I don't have a husband? How does he know I've been living with five of them? Now what, what, what does that do? What does that shock her into doing? How do you
2: know so much
1: about her? Immediately it gets her off the earthly Why? and it gets her start thinking about the spiritual. She knows he's a prophet. And of course, what do we have? Jesus. Now here's here's the thing. She knows he's a prophet, so what's the first question she asks him?
3: Should we worship?
1: Yeah. Now I think there's two reasons she did. Number one, let's, let's talk about something other than the husband issue.
3: Yeah.
1: But the Samaritans, that was a real deep question. Because the argument with the Samaritans, between the Samaritans and Jews, is where do you worship? Do you worship at Gerizim or Jerusalem?
3: She was actually attacking in a roundabout way the prejudice.
1: Yeah, but the Samaritans were taught you, you worship at Gerizim, that was the place where you worship. So she asks, and Jesus, the prophet, who evidently is a prophet, he certainly knows her, well, where should I worship? And what's Jesus' answer? Well, neither here nor there, because you worship God in spirit, spirit and in truth. And, he best, and by the way, Jesus said, wait a minute, the Jews are, are right. You, you worship in Jerusalem. But they're worshiping in truth, but not in what?
2: Spirit.
1: You're worshiping in spirit, but not in truth. You need both. And by the way, this here's a very important concept. Because there's a lot of people that say, look, when I worship Jesus, you know, I pour my heart into it, you know, I jump up and down, whatever it is that they're doing. And God likes that. But then you say, yeah, but you don't believe he's Christ. Jesus is God. It's like going to the Mormon church. You know, you hear the beautiful Mormon choir singing great hymns but they don't believe Jesus is God. They worship in spirit, right? But where's the truth? It isn't there. And then you go down to the corner Baptist church where they're worshiping in truth. They got the truth, but they, us four, no more, shut the door, super separatist. If a woman comes in wearing something other than a skirt, she's thrown out because she's not well, what's that? <clears throat> That's the other opposite. And what Christ is saying is look, you gotta do both. You gotta worship in truth, but you worship in spirit as well. You worship with the heart. And it goes back to what I've understood or come understood in my life. Many times God is much more interested in why than what. He wants to know, well, why are you doing this? Not not as of course If if the what is totally wrong, that that's different, a different issue. But God wants to know your heart. Why do you go to church? Why are you there? Well, I got to be there because if not, you're going to be mad at me. Well, then don't come. Um, I'm there because I want you to bless me. Well, I may not bless you. Don't come. Why you? Why are you giving God this this offering? Well, I'm giving it because I've, I've been told by the pastor if I don't tithe, God will strike me with a lightning bolt. Keep your money. I don't want it.
3: He's if I invest ten, in, I get of it. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your money.
1: I don't want it. It's the same thing in a relationship. If you love someone and they're performing acts to you out of duty and fear, do you want that? No. <laughs> I would rather you do it because you love me, not because you're, you have some false sense of obligation. God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He wants our heart, and where He's revealed truth, He wants us to follow it. And what, if, what does Christ all of a sudden do to this woman while well, He reveals to her that He is the Messiah? And not only does He reveal that He's the Messiah, but He then tells her, well... Go get your husbands, and she ones and goes and gets the whole town, and brings them out, saying, "This is the one who tells me everything I've done. Isn't this the Messiah? This guy, this guy's got me tagged. He knows me." Now it may be the case that many of the people in town didn't know that she had five husbands. Possibly, but Christ did. And Christ went right at the heart of the issue. And of course, when the disciples show up, what are they? Yeah. Because they were the quintessential uppity uppity Jew. But
3: they didn't ask. (laughs) They were wise. (laughs) (laughs) wise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) But they were shocked that that he would actually talk to her. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, verse twenty seven. And all the people of the town came out, and while they're coming out, of course, what are the disciples? Well, eat, 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 and Christ says, "I have food to eat that you don't have, that you don't know." i saying, so, did somebody flip? Did somebody slip him a sandwich? I mean, this is interesting. Here's the here's the fascinating thing. Fascinating. You've got the disciples. All right, now what should they have known about Jesus?
3: He went forty days without anything. A
1: lot more than they. Than the woman at the well, right? What did the woman at the well know about Jesus? Well, he just showed up that day. And in both cases, although the woman just met Jesus and the disciples were walking with Jesus for a little bit of time, when Jesus talked about spiritual metaphors, what did both of them do?
3: Right over their
1: head. Right over their head. In the case of the woman, it was the water. In the case of the disciples, it was the food. They missed the point. Neither one of them could see what he was talking about. Neither one of them caught on. And Then Christ talks about the... It says, Many Samaritans, verse 39, from that town, believed on him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, probably Christ told her a few more things just then. You had five husbands, and the one you're living with is not your husband. Right? Again, this is a condensation of his total discussion. With him. So he probably told her a whole lot more. Because whatever he told her, it convinced her that he had her number. And he knew things that he shouldn't know unless he was the Messiah.
3: There's an important lesson to learn here as individuals, too. Because he was able to tell this lady all about herself, yet do it in a manner that she went away rejoicing, believing in him. In other words, he didn't cut her off at the knees with the information. Right. And, you know, we have to remember as Christians, you know, when you deal with problems in the church, if you're dealing with a problem in a way that condemns people and takes away the opportunity for a restoration and, you know, acceptance in spite of what they've done, then you're missing the mark. And we see that. We see that happening a lot. Somebody will get into their mind. They're going to deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. They're they don't even realize that they're so yeah. spiritual. They should they should well, be taking care of their own self, and then they just make matters worse. I,
1: I'm I'm distressed with this. The latest thing about this this church group that's protesting at um, soldiers' funerals. Oh. Yeah. That thing. Yeah. That sickens me. That sickens me. You know. I mean. The carnal part of me wants to go down and slap them all around. But it wouldn't do any good.
3: And the guy that shot that doctor. It's like... In that church. I mean, that is completely ridiculous.
1: Yeah. It's like... That's not what Christianity is about. You see, people marveled. It says in in John, not John, but Matthew, people marveled at the gracious words. Which came out of Christ. What do you mean Gracious. Jesus was kind. Look at, Think about this. Kids wanted to be around them. Yeah. They're not want to be around an old crotchety bird. They want to be around somebody that loves them. Kids like to be around Jesus. This is not... And that's one of the things that distresses me with some so-called Christian ministries and, and ministers and that, that they are so, they are so pompous and self-righteous that they miss what ministry is all about. I mean, I remember reading one one account of a man. He, he's he's one of these in the lines of the Jack Hiles of the world, and he was talking about being at a restaurant eating a sandwich, and he said some hussy came in and sat next to me and started smoking a cigarette, and I got up and left because I didn't want somebody to think I was married to her. Well, that's what Jesus would have done, I think, right? <laughs>
0: In the story, I, like, I he would have
1: got up and left. You know, if Jesus, if Jesus separated himself from all sinners, he would have been all by himself.
3: Mm-hmm. He was amongst monk.
1: Because nobody would have been poor enough to be around him. What kind of attitude is that? It's a self-righteous attitude. It's a pharisaical attitude. Jesus Christ ministered to people. He was in it to reach them. And people saw the gracious words. Now, was he able to to tear apart with his speech when he needed to? Oh, yeah, read Matthew 23. He could handle the Pharisees. There was no problem with that. But Jesus was not obnoxious. And that's one of the things I think as Christians we need to really be careful of. Let's tell people the truth. But don't be obnoxious about it. Can you tell people that homosexuality is wrong? without being obnoxious, sure. But certainly don't go out and start a website, godhatesfags.org. You don't need that. We don't need that. But here you've got Christ who graciously and kindly talks to this woman. And then we have him coming up to Cana in Galilee And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And was going down to service, met him, and told him that his son was recovering. And he asked him, well, what hour? He said, well, yesterday at this, this particular hour. And the father knew that it was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the second sign. What did he do? He healed this nobleman's son. Now, let's think about this. How did the nobleman know that Christ could heal his son? Had Christ healed anybody prior to this? If
0: it was only the second sign, then no, there's no way he would have known.
1: No. What did this guy have? Some level of faith, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Some believed that Christ could do something to heal his son. He was from God. Maybe he can heal my son. And Jesus basically said, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. But what did he do, anyways? Healed the son. And not only did this guy believe, but his entire household believed because of the miracle that Christ did. And some have asked, you know, why did Christ? I mean you're God, right? You created the universe. How would you authenticate your ministry? How could you prove to people that you were God? If you pretend pretend you were the creator in the flesh, you were Jesus. What would you
2: do? Walk into the clean clean.
1: You can do anything you want. What way would, how would you try to validate your ministry?
2: Probably in public.
1: In public, doing what?
2: Miracles.
1: Yeah. What kind would we think of?
3: I mean, you think I like you called them earlier when we took John, Mark E. I mean, p- miracles that people know beyond a shadow of a doubt is a miracle. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's lame, and you know, you can think yeah. of a lot of situations.
1: Well, you know, you, you could... You know,
3: if one Ernest these outrages and say hey, step back and let me take over.
1: You could fly.
3: You know, you could fly. You know,
1: you could you could move the terminal tower from this spot to this spot, right?
3: <laughs> you could
1: rearrange the sun.
3: You could transfigure himself in front of everybody.
1: You could, Yeah, you could do all that. But what did Christ do? How did Christ validate his ministry?
3: What did he say,
1: though? What 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 way? What was the way, what? Did he do to validate his ministry? He didn't fly. He didn't do all this other stuff. But he did what?
3: Healed
1: people. healed people. Why?
3: What did he say, though? He said he came seeking to save that which was
1: wrong. I I submit that Christ healed because of his compassion. Because of his compassion, he wanted to alleviate the suffering. Of sin. And what better way to do that than to heal people? Mm-hmm. Could he have flown? Yeah, because he have we talked about it, the temptation. He could have soared off of the Antonia and flew around and swooped around and come to a soft landing and
3: Alan, everything he did in his miracles was done of a personal nature. So was the woman at the well, that was a one on one with her. Yeah. she went away rejoicing because he revealed to her he was the messiah and he accepted her in spite of her sordid right. past and then the the guy at the pool of bethesda he healed him that was a personal thing Yep. the gathering guy that was a personal thing christ is in the business of doing something personal in each life
1: none of this whiz bangery that you see on ernest and.
3: He's All that stuff. He's not into that. I don't think Christ wanted world life. No, he he I did think it. He wanted an intimate relationship with individual people on a one-to-one one basis.
1: He showed individuals compassion.
3: I that's find his that message. Because that's the message that is still in effect today. Yep. You can know God. Yep.
1: Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was
0: made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.